The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 229. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a time lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Braveheart team. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding. Position universe. Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Hello, I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Ta-da! She'll be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the first Doctor story, The Web Planet. Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thanks. Folks, remember to like The Secrets of Doctor Who on Facebook, where we're at facebook.com slash secrets of Doctor Who, and retweet our shows on Twitter at SQPN and Leave us comments there. We'd love to hear from you in those places. Yeah, so we're talking about this first Doctor story, The Web Planet. It was a six-parter. It's Ian and Barbara are the companions, along with relatively new companion, Vicky. And uh, so let me give a quick recap of the of what goes on, because it's, it's kind of a little bit involved, but let me, let me try to boil it down. The Doctor, Ian, and Barbara, and Vicky are forced to land on a planet that has a thin atmosphere, no visible vegetation. So it looks like a moonscape. And the TARDIS is drained of all power. Vicky, meanwhile, starts suffering headaches because she's hearing some ultrasonic noises from the ant-like Zarbi, who are outside making loud beeping hooting noises. That's how they communicate. Two of them, the Zarbi, attack the TARDIS and shake it. Uh, along, there's also a smaller insect species that we'll find out are called a larva gun, uh, which I think is very clever. Well, hmm. Barbara helps Vicky, the doctor, and Ian go to investigate. And then weird things happen, like Ian's gold pen disappears, Ian almost washes his hands in a pool of acid, and then he gets caught in a web, and they also see this huge pyramid structure. Barbara, meanwhile, starts getting these compulsions, like she doesn't have control of her limbs, her arms starts dragging her along by the bracelet she got from Nero in the previous story, the Romans, and then she gets dragged outside. Meanwhile, like, under under compulsion, almost zombie-like. Meanwhile, Vicky, in the TARDIS, it gets dragged off. The TARDIS gets dragged off by the Zarbi. And Barbara, meanwhile, encounters this butterfly-like humanoid species we learn are called the Monoptera. And they, we'll find out that they're the original apex inhabitants of the planet. They're the sentient species. The Zarbi are more uh, like cows. They're, they're more, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, like sheep or cows? You know, they're, they're just not cattle. In, cattle. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. Cattle-like species. Um, And the Monoptera were driven off the planet when something called the Animus took control of the Zarbi and organized them into an army and started stripping the planet of its environment. And at first, the Monoptera see Barbara as an enemy, but she escapes and is captured by the Zarbi and enslaved by them using this gold harness thing. And then she's used to attack the Monoptera, and they're all taken off. The now captured Monoptera and Barbara are sent to something called the Crater of Needles to become slave labor. Vicky, meanwhile, has emerged from the TARDIS after it was moved to the Zarbi central hive called the Carcinome, 
and the Doctor and Ian have also been captured by the Zarbi, and the Animus starts communicating remotely with the Doctor using this glass cylinder-like thing from, you know, like from Get Smart. And so this thing is, lowers around his head, and it starts talking to him. The Doctor convinces the Animus that he can help it detect the Monoptera invasion force that's coming as a ruse uh, to help Ian escape so he can go rescue Barbara. Ian eventually, he does escape, eventually connects up with a Monoptera named Reston. She tells him that they're part of a spearhead, a spearhead from space. And on the way to the Crater of Needles, they end up underground, encounter this grub-like species called the Optera, who are sort of a version of the Monoptera. They're sort of like a pupa-like version of the Monoptera, who end up worshipping the Monoptera because they have wings, and they grunt and speak in sentence fragments a lot. And the uh, Monoptera Vrestin convinces them that they're supposed to live on the surface and be like her. Barbara learns that the Monoptera are essentially planning a Leroy Jenkins suicide run at the Animus in their invasion. Uh, I just Leroy Jenkins. Is, I love that meme. At the uh, the center of the hive, and the Animus is growing stronger by it because of the way it's kind of consuming the planet. Vicky is put under the control of the mind harness that to hold her hostage to get the Doctor to cooperate the, with the Animus, but the Doctor manages to get the harness onto a Zarbi, which he then controls somehow with his special ring that he wears. Uh, we, we've suddenly learned in this episode that his ring has special uh, powers. He and Vicky escape along with the under, now under control Zarbi. They end up in the pyramid, which is, we find out is called the Temple of Light, along with Barbara and the other Monoptera. The Doctor comes up with a plan. He's going to take a Monoptera weapon called the Living Cell Destructor, or the isoptope, which is not an isotope, but an isoptope. And he's going to take that and attack the Animus while the Monoptera make a diversionary attack with Barbara as the strategic mastermind. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Doctor and Vicky are immediately captured, of course, and brought before the Animus, who takes control of them. Ian and Vrestin tunnel their way up from underground into the Animus central chamber as the Doctor and Vicky lay unconscious and Barbara's attack is faltering. But that gives Barbara the opportunity with the distracted Animus to use the Monoptera weapon, kill the Animus, free the Monoptera, free the Zarbi. Everyone's happy, and the Earthmen will forever be remembered in legend as their saviors. That about does it. I think. Yeah. I think we sum it up. <laughs> <That's> right <here. laughs> yeah. So, what do you all think of this episode of this of this story? I mean, what what do you think, Father uh, Corey? Uh, obviously, by the, the the summary, there is a lot going on in this story. It really, actually, was a fairly well packed six part episode. Uh huh. But it was bizarre. <laughs> it just, I mean, I, and, and actually, it was bizarre as you watch, as I watch later, in a good way because the the insect movements were so insect. Yeah, and this actually is credit to one of the actresses who played the Monoptera, uh, Rosalind De Winter. She actually was a choreographer mm -hmm. and studied insect movement and helped the actors learn the insects' movements of both the ant-like race and the monoptera the the, the fly like or butterfly, butterfly like bee, you know yeah monoptera learn their movements so well that the director actually says why don't you take this role why don't you <laughs> right. play one of them you've got it down so well and that that really i mean that it helped it with the alien look of it right they did some tricks with the camera including i think putting some vaseline on a lens to give it kind of a blurred look and things like that that really gave it a very alien feel that even at you know even today sometimes they don't always achieve in my yeah. opinion but it really 
really, there's a point there where it just, I was almost lost. It was just, things were going every which way and not really knowing what was going on, but I enjoyed it all yeah. in all, but it just, it was bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy, what did you think of this episode? I really like this one. Now it's a six parter. And so it's, it has some parts that are a little slower, especially in episode one, where you've got a lot of it is just the doctor and Ian exploring the planet surface. But then it becomes, even by the end of episode one, it becomes terrifyingly fast. Mm -hmm. A bunch of stuff is happening all at once. It's very threatening, and it, the dramatic pace really picks up. The, what I really like about this is the ambition that mm -hmm. the storytellers have here, because this is the, the first and only serial in Doctor Who that has an entirely non-humanoid supporting cast. Mm -hmm. There is nobody who is human or remotely human in this. Um, we have the ant-like Zarbi, which are... It, 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 when you see them, it's interesting. It's clearly a guy in an ant suit, mm -hmm. and but they have, like, six legs, which are partially articulated so they can, like, flick their upper legs and stuff. You see the human's legs peeking out, you know... Because he, he's standing on them, mm -hmm. and they've got them made up to look like ant legs, but they, you can still tell those are real human legs. But then the rest of the body is, I don't know, fiberglass or something. And you have the Monoptera, who some people, when, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, they're like butterflies. But I, upon watching more carefully, they're more like bees. They've got the transparent wings. They have a black and fuzzy yellow body in alternating bands. And that actually fits better with their name, Menoptera, from Hymenoptera, which means membrane wings, the category of creatures that bees actually fall in. Butterflies are Lepidoptera rather mm -hmm. than Hymenoptera. You've got the larva guns, which look kind of like weevils and and kind of kind of like a they're kind of aphid-like creatures that the the Zarbi farm apparently, just like ants farm aphids. And then we have the underground grub-like hoppers, the Optera, that are apparently a stunted underground version of the Minoptera. And then you have the web itself that's controlling the planet and the animus at the center of the web, which is this tentacled, weird thing. Vicky compares it to a spider, but it doesn't look like any earthly spider. And it's just amazing what they're trying to do on a children's television budget. Mm -hmm. They've yeah. got this whole planet with this, and the planet itself has this moon-like, angular, crystalline, really cool-looking surface, very barren, very stark. And you've got the planet, you've got the ecosphere, you've got like five different kinds of life forms we're dealing with here. And it's all so ambitious to do on a children's television budget. And unlike any other show that would attempt something like this at the time, they're not playing it for cute. Mm -hmm, they're right. playing it for drama. And we have on-screen deaths of, uh, like there's a Hopper uh, lady, uh, one of the underground Optera ladies, a female character named Nimini, who gets burned to death by acid on-screen screaming. Yeah. Yeah. And and like wow, this is so ambitious. This is so different. As father said, uh, the stuff on the surface is shot in this unusual blurry fashion, 
Uh, I, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, they put Vaseline on the lens. Apparently, though, according to the online accounts I've seen, it's actually a special lens mm. that that has that effect. But it it has this weird, dreamlike, blurry effect that communicates we're in an alternate atmosphere yeah. here on the surface. And so, even though it's you know it's early '60s television or mid '60s television, it's just really impressive. Yeah. One thing when I first saw that that effect of the the surface where there's kind of the blur, my first thought was, okay, well, all the you know all the originals are gone, all the masters are gone, so this obviously is just a bad copy from somebody's TV or something. But you look at it closer, it's like, no, this is actually clear as far as what the camera produced. It's just it was purposely blurred, so it's actually a good transfer of the original. It's just it looks really interesting. It really is a neat effect. Yeah, it is fascinating that they they went for it on this one. They decided to go all out on trying to do something that really had never been done. I mean, it was still early days for TV anyway, but just this idea of we're going to go full on alien environment, alien creatures. We're going to do all we can for what we could do in 1965 on this BBC budget that they had a shoestring budget in general anyway. And so they went all out. And you know, there were times when things kind of break down a bit. There's a one scene where a guy in the Zarbi suit runs into the camera. And they- oh, I love that. Yeah, that's in part three. It's my favorite part where the Zarbi accidentally rams the camera. Yeah. And there's another scene where we see Ian and the doctor from above, and you can see the set. Like, it, mm-hmm. you can see behind the set scene of, like, it's a rock, but it's really made of plywood, and you see the parts of the set behind it. Like, sure, I mean, it's fine. It's, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't kill the story for me, but it just shows how far they were willing to go. They were mm-hmm. really pushing themselves. And that's really kind of cool. And notice how this has not been done by other shows. I mean, you uh, maybe get an episode of one of the later Star Treks where you have a single, or I guess there was one episode I can think of in the original series where you have a single non-humanoid member of the cast. Mm -hmm. But uh, but no, or, or... or maybe at most one race. I can think of a Stargate episode that had a race that was basically hunks of blue crystal that mm. didn't have any mm-hmm. articulation. But nobody has done anything this ambitious where you've got like five different races or life forms, none of which are humanoid. Mm-hmm. And they're, they work as a complete ecosystem. Nobody has attempted anything like this. I mean, the, the closest to humanoid is the monoptera. I mean, they we do they see the arms and legs, and they kind of walk around. They just have wings. But I see, I get your point, Jimmy, which is you've got the zarbi, you've got the larva gun, you got the animus. I mean, those, and the optera, which are still people in hoppy suits, well, but they can't they're, walk. But they're yeah. pe- they're pe- they're people in suits, but they they yeah. don't have a fundamentally humanoid body plan. They've right. got extra arms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know the monop the optera and the monoptera have uh, I I forget the count exactly on the. Uh, on the Minoptera, but the underground grub people have like, if you count their legs, they've got eight limbs. Right, Mm -hmm. right. You know, and it's interesting that, especially now where motion capture and CGI is so easy for these studios to do that they haven't considered doing that. I mean, look at that Zarbi costume, assuming it is something like a fiberglass, that had to be the most uncomfortable because they have to spend half of the time bent over. Yeah. These men that were (laughs) in there were bent over to do the the suits. Right. Yeah, you're, you're right. Though it, it would be relatively easy for studios today to do something like this in a Star Trek or 
Star Wars or something like that, and they just haven't. That's true. That's true. Yeah, it is interesting that the they the, most modern sci-fi does tend toward we want we want uh, aliens that are recognizable as from from a yeah. human point of view. Yeah, it's just it's just like the joke about Stargate that every planet looks like British Columbia. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Or the Doctor Who, where you can travel through all of time and space, and it always ends up being London or Wales. <laughs> so, uh, one of the things I want to mention also is uh, the Vicky and the ultrasonic noise thing. That was kind of uh, interesting that they threw that in there, this idea that as a young person, Vicky can hear the ultrasonic noises that the Zarbi make, but the uh, adults can't. I thought that was kind of uh, interesting. Yeah, and that's that's actually true. Uh, this episode or this series had a lot of science in it, and that's one of the first bits where Vicky can hear the noise because she's younger, and that's actually the case. Young people can hear noises that mature people can't, and I don't mean mature as in 40, 50, 60. I mean mature as in 25. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There actually is a device called the mosquito, which is used to deter young people from loitering in in front of businesses. It broadcasts an ultra-high-frequency screech that teenagers can hear, but people above 25 cannot, and it encourages them to move along. And as a result, the um, uh, young people have actually picked up on this principle and twisted it to their advantage, because... <laughs> They've come up now with a ringtone that is, it's also sometimes called the mosquito or the teen buzz ringtone, and it is just a high-frequency screech that older people cannot hear, so the kids can know when they're getting a phone or a a call or a text message on their phone, and their parents and teachers cannot hear when that's happening. Hmm. And I actually got a recording of of this ringtone. And we're going to play it for you right now. So if you didn't hear that, it's not because there was no sound. If you check the wave file for this, you'll actually see there is content there. There is a, a very pronounced uh, waveform for the, for, the, for the ringtone. I wanted, though, to see what it sounded like if I brought down the frequency to one that adults can hear. So I cut the frequency in half in some sound editing software, and I could hear it. It was a really annoying, high-pitched, <laughs> head-piercing whine, and it was too much to play here. So I brought the frequency down again by 50%, and so this is like 25% of the original frequency, and this is what it sounds like. So hopefully everybody could hear that, but it gives you an illustration of how this actually works. Also, and you can see why that would give you a headache, just mm-hmm. like Vicky gets a headache from prolonged mm-hmm. exposure to it. And we get this great scene where Barbara is trying to help Vicky out, and this is Barbara at her most motherly. Yep. She is awesome in this scene. She is kind and compassionate, but she's going to get Vicky to take the aspirin that <laughs> Vicky doesn't know about being from the future. And when she finally convinces Vicky to take the aspirin, she, Barbara has this great line, which we're going to hear. Now, look, you don't think there's anything wrong with those pills, do you? No. Well, why don't you just pander to my 
old-fashioned medieval superstitions and take them for me. Well... After all, it would save me having to put makeup on and a mask and dance around a fire in order to get rid of the evil spirits. <laughs> all right. Good. So I love that. She, she'll she take the aspirin to avoid Barbara having to put on the uh, the makeup and the mask and dance and shake the rattles to drive off the evil spirits. <laughs> you know, in that scene, there's also a really, a really other kind of cool part where they, they end up talking about education. You know, because, mm-hmm. again, Vicky is from the future, and so she's she talks about, oh, yeah, I learned all about medicine. I got a medical degree at 10 years old, and I got, you know, all this other stuff. And it's interesting because at one point she says, Barbara says, well, you know, did you get any time off from school? Did you spend all your time in a classroom? And Vicky's like, what's a classroom? Oh, I learned from machines. And it's like, huh, they had Zoom class in the future, too. (laughs) (laughs) And they had to study almost an hour a week. Yes. Which is a a funny uh, homeschooling thing as a homeschooling family. It doesn't take as much time as schools make you think it does. So uh, yeah. it is kind of funny to see that in there. Well, That's, that was a nice entry. Although, you know, living after the, the movie The Matrix and, and seeing that scene, it's like, what, did she have, like, she jacked into The Matrix? And <laughs> yeah. She knows Kung Fu now? That's right. She downloaded it into her head. <laughs> so another interesting bit that we had here was uh, the doctor, he needs to open the doors of the TARDIS because all the power's been drained from the TARDIS. And so he realizes he's got his ring that he can use his this ring that he's been wearing all along and he says oh uh, my ring has special powers to uh, open the doors and, and by the way he's giggling to himself as he does it and he sounds just like yoda it's hysterical <laughs> he hartnell is actually surprisingly charming in mm-hmm. this you know sometimes yeah. he can be really tetchy but in the web planet he's really charming and he's giggling to himself a lot and he does get a chance to you know, bellow a bit later on at the animus. Yeah. But especially in this early part, he's just chuckling and very pleased with himself and very charming. Yep. There there are a few, uh, there are a few Hartnellisms though, where he, you know, he forgot his line. He's sitting there yeah. at the TARDIS poking at, at the console and just, I don't care. I don't care. Just leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And then he refers to uh, earth, earth years instead of light years and a couple other, uh, the typical floods that he does, which is fine. Uh, he, they, he and Ian, because the atmosphere is is very thin, he and Ian uh, start off by wearing these jackets that he calls atmospheric density jackets, which are uh, very interesting. And this was nice. I like the fact that they, for once, you know, said, okay, we're on a planet that's not just normal M-class, where we need some extra help in order to 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 function in it. The atmospheric density jackets, now you can live on Vortis without them. Mm-hmm. But it's apparently not as easy because the atmosphere is different. You need some like oxygen supplementation, and if you don't get that, you'll have a little bit of respiratory distress, especially until you get used to it. Yeah. And that was really nice. That was some more nice science in the episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds. It kind of, they kind of described it where it sounds like living. You know, if you're at the top of some of the you know ten thousand, twelve thousand foot peaks in Colorado, for example. You know, kind of where it's high elevation, where you could live up there and you could breathe up there, but you're going to need help for yeah. long term. Right, right. Uh, there is one point where the Doctor and Ian have to get this device out of the TARDIS called an astral map. And they they have to roll it out of the TARDIS into the carcinome, the, the, uh, the hive that the Animus has created. And 
the at one point Ian like bends down to unplug it to to roll it out, and the doctor says, "Oh, you must never break the time and relative dimension link." And I was like, "What? Interesting. What is going on here? What is the doctor saying that uh, the the device is part of the TARDIS and must always stay connected to it, or something bad happens?" Uh, with real d- dimensions and time, I thought that was an interesting little bit they threw in there. Well, it's like that old Saturday Night Live sketch: you can never look too long into a nuclear explosion. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, you can't. Maybe the bigger on the outs- bigger on the inside will come outside if you pull that link. <laughs> right, right. I was like, I, I, I thought it was just the plug. Um, the uh, I, sh- I should explain that ambiguity for listeners. Yeah. So the you can never look too long in an, in an, into a nuclear explosion gets. Par- can be parsed either as it's impossible to look too long into mm-hmm. a nuclear explosion or you must never look too long into a nuclear explosion. Right. Uh, you look too long into it and you're not going to see anything anymore. <laughs> uh, so the it, there's an interesting bit where we find out that the Monoptera are a, a religious people. They have a, they have a religion. Oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. There's a line that says, light was our God and we existed in light flying above thought. Uh, and they they talk about if their gods favor their survival, they must learn their lesson and use their brains and not their wings in the future. I, I thought that was an interesting addition to the to the myth, you know the mythos of the Monoptera and, and rounding them out as a species. Yeah, they their religious beliefs are a little bit fuzzy. They kind of talk like they're they're monotheists, but then they're clearly also polytheists, and so you know maybe. And they build these temples of light underground, mm-hmm. but it's you know it's nice uh, to get a glimpse into their culture. Yeah, yeah. Th- there's another. Uh, by the way, I want to mention another one of the cute doctor moments. So w- v- uh, the doctor and Vicky have hypnotized, have have con- put a you know the mind harness on one of the Zarbi, and they're con- the doctor's yeah. controlling it with his ring. It, and- I thought of it as the golden wishbone because <laughs> that's what it looks like to me. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, or yeah, the, and. Vicky thinks that her hypnotized Zarbi is cute. She's, you know, he's quite cute, isn't he, when he's like this? And the doctor says, well, I, I haven't noticed it before, my dear, but since you mention it, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he totally turns it on your expectations. No, and she's named, she's nicknamed it, what did she call it? Like Orby or something like Zombo. that? Was, Zombo. Zombo. <laughs> which sounds like zombie and Zarbi, uh, yeah. which is funny. Um, yeah. One of the things that I liked, so you mentioned the body language that the aliens have, mm-hmm. in, you know, all the different alien species, and I I thought that was very interesting. It's uh, in the case of the Monoptera, the bee-like people, it's a little bit understated, but they do things with their arms. They hold their arms sort of at chest level and move their hands around a lot, and it it's 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 not dramatically unexpected but it's a little bit unexpected the way they use their arms and that gives them a nice alien feel one of the things i liked even more though was some of the linguistic aspects mm-hmm. of monoptera culture because we learn a bunch of monoptera names and they all tend to have double consonants at the front of their name which don't normally go together in english and I liked that. Uh, one of the characters is named Plinia, with an H-L on the front of her name, and you don't normally get that, uh, the H-L, Plinia. Another is Hrostar, with an H-R on the front of his name. There's another that's Vreston, with a V-R on the front of her name. 
And then when Vreston, who is a major character, she's the main, she was the actual lady who who, uh, came up with the body movement. She was the Mm -hmm. choreographer. Mm -hmm. She's one of the main characters who's paired with Ian through a lot of this. And her, although this probably happened on the script level, she doesn't pronounce Ian the way we would. Instead, she constantly refers to him as Heron. And so she's changed the front of the word, either she or the script author has changed the front of the word to reflect the fact that in different languages, even though you may be able to say the sounds in conjunction with each other, if you're not used to saying those sounds in conjunction with each other, you will frequently adapt it somehow. Like in English, we'll say psychologist, because even though we can perfectly well say the the sounds for P and S next to each other, we tend not to do it on the front of the word. We'll do Mm. it maybe at the end of a word, like the word lips, where you can clearly hear the P and the S, but English speakers don't like to put it on the front of the word, so unlike Greek speakers, we wouldn't say psychologist. And in the same way, for some reason, in the Monoptera language, they don't like having an E sound on the front of the word, so Ian becomes Heron. Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. So, I I think that's about all of the notes I have. I I, I do want to point out that uh, I liked the 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 bit where Barbara is the one who's given the role of being the crack strategist to come up with the battle plan. Uh, which is unexpected. (laughs) That's really great. It also fits with the fact she's a history teacher, so she Mm -hmm. studied battles. That's right. That's right. So that's that's about all I have. Uh, Father Corey, do you have any other notes on the the episode you wanted to mention? Just uh, Ian was upset because he lost his old uh, Cole Hill School tie. You know, of course, we come back to that. And we'll see Cole Hill School here in a little while when they leave again. So... Uh, Jimmy, any any other notes? Yeah, I had a few notes. So we mentioned that they have these acid pools on the surface that we're told have properties similar to formic acid. And that's another little science thing for the kids in the audience. Uh, Formic acid is a kind of acid that was originally isolated from insects. So like bees, wasps, things like that make formic acid or at least various kinds of insects make formic acid, which is why in the sequels to Ender's Game, the buggers are called the formics, because Uh this is a term connected with them. But formic acid actually isn't, I'm not sure what the doctor is thinking of, because formic acid isn't really that strong. It doesn't totally dissolve things the way it instantly dissolves parts of, uh, of Ian's Coal Hill School tie. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, apparently it has some kind of connection there. Also, uh, I liked how they have the uh, initial group of Monoptera that we meet. They're a kind of spy scouting force for their spearhead, which is meant to prepare the way for their larger force. So these are like the early rangers coming in to figure out the situation. And they've got a radio to talk with their spearhead uh, force behind them, and it's made out of crystals. It's like three panes of crystals, and you control it by moving the three panes of crystals back and forth. And this is actually really cool. This is another thing that would have been, I think, more obvious. It's another science thing that would have been more obvious to the audience at the time 
because they had a greater memory of crystal radio sets. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, they would control radios by using actual crystal and so it, it that was visible that you could see and so it makes sense that they would have a radio that's a an even bigger crystal set one thing that i think didn't work so well was the there's a moment where it's at, towards the beginning of this where ian and the doctor have been walking around and they need to go back to the tardis and suddenly ian is captured and what happens is there's a net on the ground with that's interwoven with some mm. leaf-looking stuff that suddenly zooms up and captures Ian, and he tells the doctor to go back to the net, uh, to go back to the TARDIS. And I thought, oh, Ian has been captured by the Zarbi that we've mm. seen running around. But when the doctor gets back, it's like, what happened to the weed that captured you? And oh. it's like, oh, that was meant to be a weed. It was yeah. not meant to be an actual artificial thing. So this is this is one time where the visual effects, I think, betrayed their nature because I thought he was being intelligently captured by the Zarbi, right. but apparently this was a random weed attack, and then the weed shrunk back underground for some reason. Mm -hmm. Right. He was... Inedible. <laughs> yeah, but there were there were other nice things in this, uh, like I just on the level of set design. When we finally see the animus, and it's really hard to describe it. It's kind mm -hmm. of like two parts, one of which floats above the other, like two parts of a separated sphere. Except it's all covered in foam rubber tentacles, and it and it yeah. floats and glows. And wow, it's weird looking. I also like how the uh, the underground hopper race, the Optera, have have these crystal knives mm -hmm. that they're right. using, mm -hmm. and there's just a lot of a lot of really impressive stuff in this. It it is television from the period, so it doesn't meet modern standards of pacing, but it, it's 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 one that I really admire. Even for that, it still moves right along. For mostly, I mean, we've mentioned mm -hmm. a couple of places where where it slowed down a bit, but. It still moves along, and it, it's pretty good for that. Yep. All right, so I think that about does it for the Web Planet. That was that was a good one, uh, and I I, agree, I I I like that one. So I'm I'm glad we we had a chance to talk about it. Uh, let's wrap things up. I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the Secrets of Doctor Who, including Father Eric T, Elizabeth E, Kathy L, Linda N, and Janet M. Their generous donations at sqpn.com/give. Make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What did you think of The Web Planet? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or The Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 11th Doctor story, Closing Time. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing The Secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Tom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, their deeds shall be sung in the Temple of Light. Pictos shall remind us of a time as it circles Vortis. Every time it points to the needle of the kings as it does now, we shall weave songs to praise the gods of light and thank them that they sent the Earth people to save us from the Animus. Right. This is going to be fun.
Zarby, Zarby, hee hee. <laughs> People might not get it. <laughs>